Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me once again is Laura Zach. Hi, Say hello, everyone. Laura. You really jumped on the I line I was there. so excited. <laughs> I was so excited. Um, so, well, we're back, folks. Um, we've been gone for a few weeks uh, for a trip of Laura's, and we've kind of decided that it was... What, the end of season one yep. of Print Run? It's been about a year, a little over a year uh, since we started, and we figured, you know, we'll just call we'll just call that break, you know, a season break, and we'll come back strong for season two at the end of October. Yeah, it means, it means that, you know, we're now going to be doing the circuit at Comic-Con. We're both going to be getting raises. People are going to be <laughs> speculating about, you know— yeah. Why we're dr- what we're drinking at Starbucks? All of these things that come with a beautiful second season. Well, you had a really good idea for what we were drinking a second ago. Yes, um, off air, and I'd like you to share with the listeners what that yes. was. Yes, so it's um, it's gonna be trademarked. So, uh, it's called podcast wine, mm. and that's because we use a table to record, uh-huh. and we also use glasses to drink out of and so sometimes when i am stealthily sipping during this podcast these beautiful high quality microphones pick up that i am just a huge wine out well, see i think the problem actually is that it's usually like while you're like making some like articulate point about something important and i'm like over here like clinking sipping. and slurping because i get a lot of like text messages and tweets that are like, hey, maybe you should like not clink your wine glass as you're like talking about literature. You try um, doing like a podcast so, like, without booze. <laughs> so like padded, like padded bases to the yeah, wine glasses. Yeah, like these beautiful, yeah. like sturdy, yeah. but like padded bases. Yeah. So it's, yeah, so you can't, you can't make noise. I mean, the solution isn't to stop drinking. Oh, absolutely The solution not. is to simply enable it. You have and- to wet your whistle somehow. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, so I'm trying to think, since we got back, um, the recording studio is a little different outside. There were several things. I just walked out there. There's, like, new stuff going on. I saw a kid in rollerblades. What? Just zipping around. Oh, that, oh, the, like, the tall, skinny one? That dude's always in rollerblades. No, no, no. This was a little kid. There's, oh. like, a taller dude. Uh, anyway, so Apparently, there's, a kid in, there's more than one dude who runs around in rollerblades. So there was a kid in rollerblades. Um, he was wearing a helmet. Shout out, safety. <laughs> um... And then also, this was the thing that was truly appalling to me. The vending machine in it had a frozen dinner. Lean as cuisine? one of the uh, There was a lean cuisine in a vending machine. Yeah. I've never seen that in my entire yeah. life, and it upset me very deeply. Well, artists live here. Like, <laughs> like if I, I'm, like, going over to the vending machine for Skittles, and all of a sudden it's like, hmm, maybe instead of this Twix bar, I'd rather have this like- creamy chicken and noodles. <laughs> like, <laughs> man. I've never seen that. You can get whole dinners in vending machines now. I guess. I'm sure that's old. I guess. Um, and then also there seems to be a podcast in the recording studio next to us. Besides us. Yeah, there's a new one in God town. God damn it. I know. Wait, are okay, so are we better than them? I don't know. They they looked pretty cool. Like I went in there to see if they had like a chair that I could sit in, you know. Um, and they have like pretty high-tech looking microphones and, you know, they were they were like cool teens is how I would put it. Oh, yeah. So they're not wearing cardigan, gray cardigans like <laughs> no, both no, no. you and I are right now. <laughs> yeah, um, you shouldn't have shared that. So um, we're we're not only like not the best ranked podcast on iTunes, but we are also not the best podcast in this literal basement. We're n- not even right now. Not even like, right now. Yeah, like in the basement at this moment, there are several shows better than us happening. There's also like a dance troupe. Nearby, they're in like coordinated outfits, so they're better. So we're also in coordinated outfits. Yeah, we're both wearing this beautiful heather gray cardigan. Uh, yeah. Um, anyway, it's good to be back. It is good to be back. I'm very excited to be back because I, I miss this, and I think that a lot of our listeners miss this too, based on how often I was getting yelled at online about the <laughs> show. That's how you know um, that you're doing well so when people good. yell at you. Um, yeah. No, it got weird for a while. I sent out like I found like a mural of a loon and like pretended it was like a tasteful nude. <laughs> Of the bird, like it's good. It's good that we've redirected our energy back into actually making the show. Yeah, um, but um, no more tasteful bird nudes. <laughs> you animals. <laughs> um, so before before we get into uh, today's show, which I think will be a good one and already is, um, how about the basic rundown, huh? Yes. Yeah, so 
This Thursday, October 26th, we will go live with our Writing by Reading Mm -hmm. episode. So this one I'm really, really, really excited about. It's one of my favorite books of this year. Um, Also, Eric sent me a text message today saying... I want to talk about why I don't hate it. Yeah. Um. So this this is going to be the fifth season by N.K. Jemisin. Okay. So to clarify, um, that comment, it's obviously it's a very good book, and I don't hate it. But the thing of it is, is that it breaks, um, especially in the beginning, all the rules, a lot of rules that I typically set things down on. But it does a pretty nice job of like being the exception to a ton of different stuff. So I think it might be useful to. Kind of work through what it is about this this book, the fifth season, that really is working, and it is. Um, it's it's pretty good. So, yeah. So um, we're gonna be talking about that. That'll go live Thursday morning, the twenty sixth. Mm-hmm. It's also time to announce our November dates. Yeah. So our query show will go live November sixteenth. Writing by reading for next month <clears throat> will be on be on November twenty third, and then first pages will be on the thirtieth. Mm-hmm. Hooray! Hooray! Um. So. <laughs> We were gone for a few weeks. Specifically, specifically, you were gone. I I for was. A few weeks. I was in um, Europe and in North Africa, so I did not always. I was not always logged on, Eric. Yeah, no, that's that's good. That's healthy for you. Um, but so I figured, um, since you were gone, we should do some catching you up. I would appreciate we that. We should yes. like take a minute and like cover the last few weeks of book news, uh, which is just a goddamn mess. As a- <laughs> As it usually is. Um, and so I'm trying to think. The first thing that comes to mind here, um, I don't know if you saw this story, but in terms of making sure that, um, you know, because I feel like when we were gone, lots of lot, lots and lots of, like, print run topics were Happened. happening. And we were, like, chained back, you know, like the, you know, like the wrestler who's been, like, you know, pinned in the corner or something. Um, and we couldn't talk about it on air. So I thought we should do it now. And the first um, is that the uh, – is that the book, the YA novel American Heart? Mm. You're familiar with it. Yes, that's the that's the white centered Muslim one. Yes, it is. The, <laughs> it is the white centered Muslim one, and that obviously has been talked about a lot. Um, and why it was kind of criticized for exactly that reason. Um, but something interesting happened, which is that Kirkus pulled its star mm. off its review. And in this in this article that uh, that Vulture ran, it basically implies, according to you know the editor at Kirkus who did this, um, that they did it because it was um, because of just you know in conception it was a book centered on um, it was a Muslim story centered on a white person, yes. uh, centered on a non-Muslim you know main character, and um, it's obviously caused a bit of a stir because. Everyone who gets mad about everything in the book world has decided that this is another example of, um, you know, the liberal agenda and, um, you know, censorship and all these things. And, you know, we're trying to put away books about, you know, white people, <laughs> which is kind of an absurd thought that we're so going to. So getting rid get, of a yeah. trade review is censorship? Well, you know what I mean? Like people are mad once again that um, people are making, you know, review decisions based on the simple fact that the book is – Racist as hell. Quote, unquote, about a white person. Yes. Okay. And so um, I guess, you know, for me, you know, this uh, some of it has to do with what Kirkus is, which is a journal that is trying more and more to be, you know, diverse and very interested in the— Also, Kirkus doesn't like anything, but they gave this a starred review. I guess right away, yeah. That that, that actually makes me feel a lot better as an agent about all of the, like, books that Kirkus does not give starred reviews to. Well, so so this is the fundamental question, I think, for your for your quick little take here. Um, are you okay with a book getting a worse review than it would otherwise, regardless of how well it's written, regardless of how um, well it's executed, um, purely because it doesn't quite line up with a you know cultural mission that this you know um, widespread library journal you know has? Yes. Yeah. Well, I think it's I think it's more than that. It doesn't align with the cultural mission. I think what it is is it's um, because of the discourse that happened. I think it, there is an understanding that the concept of the book is fundamentally flawed, and mm. I feel like yeah. giving a worst review to a book that, that is, is fundamentally, fundamentally flawed. flawed is a good and just thing. You know, I view it I view it as a step as well. And I think it's um, I think it's a good move. I wish that they had not given the star in the first place. You know what I mean? Like I I think that there is some, you know, if you're going to do this, there's some responsibility for you know consistency and like 
you know, having your eggs in the correct basket, you know, from the get go, if you're going to do something like this. Yeah. But no, I mean, I think that if, you know, we're going to, we talk a lot about, you know, diversity in publishing and the necessity of making sure that the proper people are telling the stories about um, certain cultures and types of people. Um, and you, if, you know, if a review journal is going to take part in this mission, I think, I think this is good. And I think it is fair to say that we think this book is a little bit worse because it's written from a perspective it perhaps doesn't belong to. Yep. Um, so I'm into that. I'm, I think that that's a fine choice. I can see why it, you know, it rankles some people, but I tend to think that those people deserve rankling anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, good um, for Kirkus. I'm still confused about what gets a star from Kirkus. So I'll report <laughs> yeah, back because Kirkus, Kirkus, so Kirkus, Kirkus does is do some the crazy crankiest shit. Yeah. They are of very, the trade no, they, reviews. They are very cranky. I agree. Um, we've, I remember, yeah, we were all, always trying to figure out what the hell they were trying to do, but whenever, whenever Kirk, we get a, like, one of my authors gets a Kirkus review back, the publicist always says, they said something kind of nice. And mm-hmm. that's like a glowing review from mm-hmm. them. So interesting. Yeah. I don't know. It'll, maybe they'll be making changes to like who reviews it and maybe they'll be less curmudgeony. I don't know. So here's, here's the line from, um, from the article here um, that I think the quote from the person at Kirkus that I think is worth uh, discussing here. And here we go um, about the book and why they decided not to give it the, the star or why they decided to revoke the star rather. Sarah Marie's, who I think is the protagonist, ignorance is an effective world building device, read the new review. But it is problematic that Sadaf is seen only through the white protagonist's filter. Mm. Which kind of gets at what you're saying. Yeah. Which is that um, – the book can make a poor choice in its conception. Yeah. You know, they, it is a wrong writing choice to tell this story from this, um, you know, white teenager's perspective when you've got a different. And so it kind of gets it, um, you know, and we're going to kind of do this in a minute. We'll kind of get more into it in a second. But, um, you know, these choices are not without without hang up and these choices are not without, um, you know, some real thought that needs to go into it either way. Um, but. I think that the instinct here from Kirkus is is a good one. Um, yeah, I think I think you know for people who are really caught up on like the the diversity aspect of this, I think it might be easier to understand considering like um, like let's let's look at the Fellowship of the Rings, right? Yeah. You've got yeah. Frodo, and then you've got Samwise Gamgee, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's fundamentally like. Sam, his whole arc, his whole like thing is trying to get Frodo to Mordor so that he can get rid of the ring, right? Yeah. yeah. Think about how bad of a story it would be, or like not necessarily bad, but how not as good of a story it would be if it was told from Sam's point of view. Right. Like it's just that. It's not their story. It's, it's, yeah, Yeah. it's not the story. Like this, this is written from like, American Heart is written from what should be like a sidekick. And that's yeah. just a fundamental flaw yeah. in the narrative choice. Yeah. Um, so like I'm in that. I think that. that's a good way to put yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so that's one thing. That's one um, thing. So maybe we should do one with uh, that's equally, um, you know, silly. And, and Yeah, cheery is the word we'll put. Um, a county in Mississippi is pulling To Kill a Mockingbird from all its reading lists. Oh, sweet Jesus. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? Because it features the N word. Oh no. Yep. What do you wanna what do you wanna bet that they still have Huck Finn? Well yeah, no, they've got all kinds of I mean obviously it's a complete <laughs> it's a completely ludicrous reason to pull the book and all the reasons um you would and like from what I read, it was like mid lesson plan, like the kids had already <laughs> started reading oh, it. No. And they're like, mm, no, we're gonna we're gonna pull this. Um obviously this is I think a terrible decision. It's happened a few times. Like To Kill a Mocking. This is not the first time someone has tried to uh, ban To Kill a Mockingbird for exactly this reason. Jokes you know? on them. They should just go to the theme park. <laughs> there is a, there is a theme park, isn't there? Yeah. Um, real quick side note: We were. Um, I asked. Um, I didn't ask. Someone just sent in while you were off a suggestion for an author theme park, just out of the blue. Oh, really? They sent us one. What was and it? And it was. Uh, it was a Garrison Keillor uh, wo- <laughs> Wobegon theme Lake park. Lake Wobegon. <laughs> Which I found amusing. And I was like, this is 
this would be the sort of hellscape that that we deserve. So, so there. Oh, oh my goodness. Um. Anyway, back to um back to Mississippi, uh, which we're not going to be leaving. By the way, we're going to oh. stay in Mississippi for a topic after this so, too. But, um, <laughs> so. So because there's the N word, because you know nobody in Mississippi has ever heard that word before. <laughs> Christ, yeah. Um. So. It just seems like, you know, I mean, the reasons for keeping it, obviously, since apparently we need to provide them, are many and robust, that it's a book that does a very good job of discussing um, America's racial history. It's a book that um, does lots of things to start conversations in a classroom in a country that has obviously tons of issues with its own history, with its own teaching of history specifically. It's got a good Um, mystery in there. (laughs) Yeah. It's got a rousing good. It's got a um, rousing courtroom scene. Yeah. It has a um, sequel now. Well, it's a, All of these things are a, good things. It's a good book and it's an important book and they want to pull it because, you know, it's a book that is taught at a young age. Mm. Right? Like the thing with To Kill a Mockingbird that I think is unique to To Kill a Mockingbird is that it's taught in a very widespread way at a very young age. Yeah. And so um, and it's not a children's book. Like it, no, no it's, exactly. Yeah. It's a book that pushes kids. You know, yeah. it's a book that forces them, you know, to have, you know, it forces a teacher to have a conversation, you know, with their kids about something, however sanitized it ends up being. And usually it's pretty sanitized. But like the point is, is that it pushes people and it pushes kids. And that's kind of the point of education in a lot of ways. Um, and it just seems like a silly thing, but um, this obviously was just one more. Thing. Was it overturned or is no, it upheld? No, no, no. We're still, uh, oh. we're still, we're still banning it for now. Um, as of as of now, I maybe think. Print Run should send a couple copies to like some <laughs> local libraries yeah. or something. That might be nice. Uh, that might be nice. Um, so staying in Mississippi. Oh boy! <laughs> All right, what do we got? Um, well, our friend was. Our friend is in the news again. Our oh, award-winning friend? Which friend? friend? Yeah, which um, award-winning friend? I wouldn't call her a friend of the show, but I would call her a figure in the print run universe. She's a friend of your heart. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> our friend, our friend Joyce Carol Oates logged on. Oh no! Which is which in is Mississippi. always um, she logged no, on. Well, about Mississippi. Oh, goodness gracious! Um, she kind of put her foot in her mouth again, as she's wont to do. Can she log on without doing no, that? No, no, no. She's okay. she's incredible at posting. And that's one thing I respect about her, but she really she really screwed it up this time. Um someone tweeted out a picture of a banner of um like a William Faulkner banner at Mississippi State University. Sure. Just like a picture, you know, just kind of in the library it looks like I'm looking at it now. Um and Joyce got on here and said, "Quote, so funny. If Mississippians read, Faulkner would be banned." Just to remind you that this is a woman <laughs> who got upset because she thought that um, actual dinosaurs were being actually hunted Poached. by yeah. people. Yeah, she was mad that the Jurassic Park poaching was happening, <laughs> um, and also did li- literally like did the drill tweet about got it, got to hand it to ISIS, um, which I also found really engaging. But oh anyway, God. so um, Joyce is uh, oh, no. spending the time implying that uh, people in Mississippi don't read. Which of course rankles lots of people for especially a lot of authors. reasons, especially authors. And so, yeah. um, there was quite the field day. Um, did did Joyce double Joss down, or Carol. did she apologize? Joyce has, or did she, has just she ever, ignore she it? She doesn't apologize for this stuff. She Come just on. ignore it. She, yeah, she just yeah. did the, the the ignore it. Um, but like Angie Thomas got really mad at her. Well, with she, good oh, reason. she's from Mississippi. She's from Mississippi. Yeah, um, which is a perfectly valid response because <laughs> it's kind of an appalling tweet. But um, have you ever read anything by Joyce Carol? I've read her tweets. <laughs> the greatest, the greatest entry into yeah, her. Yeah, it's. Her catalog. I mean, it's if she's gonna win the Pulitzer Prize for anything, and it should be her tweets. The only thing I think I've read a few things by her. Um, the one thing I remember was that story about the mastiff. She's got one story. I believe it's called Mastiff, even, and it's about this big old dog that attacks this lady. Oh, so not a good dog. <laughs> no, no, no. The dog is very bad. Oh, it's a very bad dog. Mm. She can't even write a good dog. God damn it, Joyce. <laughs> um, anyway, um, should, should we keep it moving? Yes, should we discuss, yes. Should we discuss I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm sad that I left or that yeah. I'm glad I was gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you're going to be very sad that you left here in a second um, when perhaps you've heard of um, the company Amazon. Rings a, <laughs> Rings a bell. Rings a bell. Amazon is, um, as you know, looking for 
a new headquarters location. Are they really? Yeah. They're, Why? They're um, wait. Where are they located right now? I have no idea. Well, they're they're kind of all over the place, right? But like they're looking to put another big old like home base in another city. Interesting. Which, like specifically about the books, or just kind of like Amazon just in general? Like, yeah, corporate headquarters. Okay, gotcha. Um, and. That obviously has cities vying for Amazon's attention. Are they bidding for Amazon they like they are, bid for the Olympics? Yeah. Um, and it's just as embarrassing, frankly. <laughs> um, so. It'll end in bankruptcy just like all of the Olympics locations do. Yeah. Um, so the first the first city that's bidding uh-huh. for Amazon. Don't tell me it's us. Don't tell me it's, it's us. It's not us, thankfully. Good. It oh, is good. Um, one of them, the front runner, I think, as of last time I checked, um, was uh, was Denver. My my old hometown, um, Denver might win Amazon. Good thing you're here now. Yeah. Um, so um, New York City is bidding, um, and the New way York they are City? like it, Manhattan. Yeah, the way they are embarrassingly doing this is by lighting up all the buildings in Amazon orange. Oh God! As like a as like a sign to Jeff Bezos that they're Amazon friendly. Where okay, question. <laughs> Amazon is a huge company. Where are they gonna put Amazon know. headquarters in Manhattan? I don't know, Laura. I don't know. Um <laughs> but New York City is interesting and is doing a little light show for Jeff. Oh god. Hopefully Jeff likes the light show, fingers crossed. Okay, I I'm curious about this whole light show thing because most of these mm-hmm. buildings are privately owned, right? So like would the mayor have to like call up these like building owners and be like, okay, at 8.05 tonight, we're doing a light show. Here, do this. Or yeah. like, no, or this like is, is the mayor. mayor. This was an effort from the mayor. Yeah, de Blasio and, and started he's, this. Yeah. And he's like in control. He or Either that or he's like secretly in control he's of all of the lighting. A, he's spending a serious amount of his day making sure that all the buildings light up in the correct color of orange. Um, what if, what so. if you're a building owner and your building doesn't light up in the appropriate colors or even at all? What if it just has like normal building lights? I mean, honestly, you should be kicked out of the city, frankly. Yeah. Um, if you're not here to welcome the overlords, then you can go get the <laughs> hell out is what I say. Um, but uh, so Washington, D.C. Uh-huh. Is also is also doing this. Oh, we should um, just put it right in the White the, House. That'd and, be great. <laughs> um, the mayor has gotten involved here and they've produced a video in which um, they talk to Alexa, you have oh, a little God. Amazon yeah. voice, right? Yeah. And they ask Alexa, you know, what's the best city for Amazon to go to? And Alexa answers Washington D.C. So is this like a commercial? Yeah, just kind of like a little, just kind of like a little video. Oh God. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm just embarrassed for these cities. Yeah, no, it's a deeply embarrassing exercise for really the entire country. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, Stonecrest, Georgia, has. Has offered to literally establish a town in his name. Yeah, I've never heard of this place ever. Yeah, well, no, we've got. Um, they want to make. They want to de-annex 345 acres of land to create a, a city that will be known as Amazon, Georgia. Oh gosh. Yeah. They're not going to win, but I appreciate the they dedication. Might, I mean, it depends on the land, I suppose, right? Yeah, I bet it's. I bet it's not like primo land. I bet it's like a little marshy. Yeah. A little muggy. <laughs> But like they're like here, love, you can have. I it. would love for Amazon to buy like 345 acres swamp. of like boondoggle, like <laughs> <laughs> like bit in Arrested Development where they buy the lemon grove and it's like in like the military like launch testing facility. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, also Kansas City. Mm. This is really when we hit levels of thirst that are yeah. really really difficult. Um, their mayor Sly James. Um, has gone online, he logged on, oh. as everyone who's ever wanted to do anything must yep. do, um, and has reviewed thousands of Amazon products and do given you... them all five-star reviews, including a review of a microfiber sheet set in which he said, don't let the twin sheet set fool you. These twin sheets are, in fact, a single set of sheets, not twins, and that's just fine by me. <laughs> this goes on for, like, another okay, paragraph. Okay, what do you want to bet that there is some, like, like breathy poli sci major uh-huh. in at the local university who's yeah. like, I am gonna work for the mayor this summer. Yeah, and, and this then, is what they're fucking doing. And it's then like, they have to log into the mayor's private Amazon account and like leave and leave reviews. It's like programming Alexa to like say, late capitalism is good. Like it, it's, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's yeah. Everything I'm curious. Is... I'm curious if he left any reviews on books. Hmm. Good question. Um. Apparently it's all it's all home goods, and though he you know thousands 
of Amazon reviews. Who has thousands Mr. of Mayor, Mr. Goods? Mayor, what are you doing? Like, do you have time in your schedule today? No, no. No, no. I have to review this blender for Jeff. I have to make a smoothie <laughs> real quick. Um, anyway, we should uh, we should shout out the reporter who kind of gathered these. Uh, Cleo Chang of Splinter did a very good job. Good gathering. job, Cleo. Um, but uh, so that's that's what that's what the, our new soon to be tech overlords have been up to. Oh my goodness! Um, but of course, there's more. There's more that's been happening. <laughs> oh my um, God. This is this is actually okay. we're getting we're getting into good stuff now. Um, I'm sorry, like. Like reviewing twin sheets wasn't 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 good. <laughs> reviewing that sheets, wasn't good content. Reviewing sheets so that the drones are nice to you is uh is not in the good category. All right, what what's give me something show. good then? But something good, Frankfurt Book Fair happened. Yeah, it did. Yeah. I completely forgot. Yeah, uh, the Frankfurt Book Fair is one of the for those who don't know one of the very largest uh, book fairs in the whole world. Um, and it's an important one. It's a lot of rights deals happen there, right? Um, it features the international publishing community. Um, you know, it's a— It's where all the translation deals are done. <clears throat> right. It's like a very, very big, important meeting. It's kind of like a—it's almost like a State of the Union um, for publishing every year. Right? Like we get, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we kind of get, you know, everyone together in a room to take stock of the industry. Um, and, you know, there were some things, and we're going to get into uh, what one figure um, said in the beginning— um, as uh, the keynote here in a second, but one thing that caught my eye um, was the idea that apparently everyone is shocked still somehow. I thought we had kind of ended this conversation like three years ago, but everyone is shocked that the print book still exists and hasn't <laughs> been completely overtaken by Just ebooks. still? Yeah. So, Just still. And here's here's the line. Um, so this is the uh, CEO of Simon & Schuster. Uh, her name is Carolyn Reedy. Um you know, and she says, ebooks have done some pretty remarkable things, but ebooks are and always have been just a format. Yeah. Which sounds very, which is a very bland thing to say right now on its face, but it really, in the terms of how people were talking about ebooks years ago, um, as recently as like five years ago, even, like that is not how people were talking about ebooks. We were talking about the death of the print book. We were talking about no more paper, especially paperbacks, right? Yeah. Like, you know that this the ebook was kind of meant to be the cheap edition. You know, hardcover was sort of viewed as a separate thing, but we sort of thought that ebooks were going to cut into paperbacks in a really drastic way, and it simply hasn't happened. No, it's just leveling out. Just people and who weren't buying print books are now buying ebooks. It's just a it's just a format, you know, and um, it sort of marks a, you know, I mean that we're kind of admitting this at this point that the ebook is not the all-consuming, you know, next thing in publishing. I think it's. It's interesting because, um, you know, we talk a lot on this show and everyone in books talks about, okay, what's the next big thing in publishing? What's the next thing that is going to, quote, unquote, save us? You know, like what's the thing that is going to make, you know, publishing really trend upward once again? And, you know, you hear here that, you know, um, a lot of sales and stuff are pretty steady. Um, you know, things are going, quote, unquote, okay. It's just ebooks simply are not the thing. That we believed them to be. Um, they're a perfectly good format of book. You know, they're selling just fine, but they aren't the revolutionizing force that um, has like overtaken the entire you know ethos of the industry. Yeah. And I think that's interesting. I I just I don't know. Maybe it's just because I'm young or like I like various different formats of books. Yeah. But I always think that it's really silly that and this conversation has been happening for years. But I find it very strange. That people are just like searching for like the final format. You yeah. know what I mean? And it's like, but people are different. Like what other what other industry wants to reduce how much they're diversified in the way that they present products to people? Yeah. Like yeah. that's just that's just strange to me. Yeah. I don't know. Like it's I'm sorry, like another option means that you sell more books, not like like whoever's wrung their hands over like selling too many copies. I don't know. It's it's um that's always been really strange to me. And now that ebooks are evening out, I think, and now apparently they're talking about it at Frankfurt. I'm yeah. I'm really hoping that we can kind of like turn to making sure that innovations happen throughout the business and not just like reliant on things like Amazon Georgia, um, and its 
you know, orange colored yeah. swamp. Um, <laughs> yeah. One city, I forgot to read, one city had, they made like a giant, like building sized brown Amazon box oh, sculpture. Yeah. Oh, God. That was really, that was real cute. That's, that's excellent. Yeah. That'll make Jeff want to come. Yeah. And now it's just like home to like all the cats. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, yeah. Okay. So Frankfurt book happened and apparently we're not freaking out about ebooks anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay. What, um, is there anything else I missed? Well, so, I mean, it was kind of a, um, you know, it featured the um, forefront leaders of the Western world this year. Uh, Angela Merkel went. Did she? Um, she did. Ooh. As did um, Emmanuel Macron mm. of France. Um, and they were kind of the, you know, the headliner guests um, on the first day. But the keynote was delivered by Andrew Wiley. And if you don't know Andrew Wiley, he is a um, really one of the more famous literary agents going. Um, He's like and, the agent. Yeah, exactly. He's sort of um, – If it, anybody has ever heard of being a literary agent, they know Andrew Wiley. It's because of him. He's sort of – honestly, like in a way, he sort of has like the name resonance that like Max Perkins has like for being an editor. Like it's the same sort of um, – you know, he was everybody's agent for a while and he was kind of known as being, you know, the guy who was just able to bleed publishers dry on behalf of his authors. You know, like he was the one – who fought and was willing to fight and was willing to do, you know, he was a big player in pushing back against Amazon. You know, when we did our Amazon episode, if you go back and listen, you know, he comes up a lot as someone who was really trying to stick up for authors and stuff because he's got that kind of clout. Um, But he gave the keynote and he was talking about books, obviously, and this being the International Conference of Ideas that it is. um, He was talking about um, autocratic societies. I can't imagine why, Um, but... (laughs) Um, And sort of the international exchange of ideas in literature. And this is what he said, and I want to get what you think about this. I think that autocrats and autocratic societies are doomed to fail. Why? Because the desire politically to enforce a single view of the world is inevitably destined to run afoul of the fact that a diversity of views is what we have, he said. People want more. They want to travel locally and globally and to encounter different perspectives because that's the way the world is. This is the human condition. So obviously that gets into a bunch of broad ideas that have nothing to do with books. But in terms of books, his basic idea – and then he sort of dovetails that into a discussion of, um, you know, why, for instance, you know, diverse books are needed. Why we need books that are written by a variety of people about a Mm -hmm. variety of experiences as sort of not just a, you know, the lifeblood of the industry but as almost a political project, right? Like this is the the reason book publishing is important. I think, in a lot of ways in terms of its use to the world. Um, it's it's an interesting thought. I mean, I think that um, he, he kind of, you know, gets mad at um, HarperCollins at the end about kind of their global thing because I think he would rather be the one managing all the rights. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, you and know. It, it's not revolutionary, no, what he not said. Revo- it's, it's not revolutionary. It's just that all of a sudden we seem to have this need to, like, remind ourselves that, like, totalitarianism is bad. Um, what a surprise. Yeah. Um, so that's that's kind of where we're at um, with Frankfurt. Um, I think the share memoir got sold at mm. Frankfurt. Okay. Uh, that was the other little bit of news. Is she going to um, turn back time? Always. Okay. She's going to find a way. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, but uh, so let's see. I'm trying to think if we've got anything else here. Oh, we gave out the we gave out the Nobel. Yes. Um, to yes, Ishiguro. We did. Um, so, congrats to there. Um, let's see. We give. I'm just. Up. I'm just glad that it's an actual novelist this year. <laughs> yeah. And not Where like. You, and not like somebody. Who, did we talk about? We did talk about that about last year, Bob right? Dylan yeah. winning. Yeah. yeah. I I had a really um, long conversation when I was when I was in Morocco with my with my brother in law who lives there. Mm-hmm. And he's you know he's a he's a big reader. We you know talk about books a lot. And he was really affronted that Bob Dylan had won the Nobel last year and was he was really happy about this year's because it it was good. But he was he was more upset, like not that not that it was a songwriter who had won the Nobel last year, but because out of all of the songwriters, clearly Bob Dylan was a very bad choice and that it should have been <laughs> Leonard Cohen. Oh. And then we spent like three hours with him, like going through like songs with us and like showing us. And I have I have come down to it where it like, like a, 
it should have been Leonard Cohen. This sounds that's interesting. It all sounds like a dreadful time. Like no, at a party. I mean like <laughs> fiance is a musician. Yeah, you he, just had a, he's a music guy. Like it's what they do. They sit around yeah, and they listen to music. Yeah. It just so happened that it was also about lyrics this time. So mm-hmm. like it was really it was really that was there for me, which I appreciate. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, so, so um, we gave it to an actual an actual novelist. We we gave it to an actual <laughs> writer um, of not songs, yeah, but um, of, but of just words. We also we also handed out the MacArthur Genius Grants. Oh, I missed um, that. One. I actually two, did miss that. Two one. names that jumped off the page to me uh, was uh, Jasmine Ward, ooh, um, who we've talked about on awards shows before. Who wrote "Sing Unburied Sing"? Yep, um, she, and Salvage she the Bones. previously has a National yep. Book Award. Now she's a finalist for this year's National Book Award. And then uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen um, oh. got a uh, Genius Grant, which I think is well deserved. Yeah. Uh, the author of "The Sympathizer," um, and then. And then Laura. Oh gosh. Yeah. What are what are we what are you building up to? I'm I'm scared. <laughs> we we he actually didn't tell me what this list was before we started um, recording. They gave out the man Booker. Oh yeah. And this is where you and I get into some trouble. Yeah. So because remember we did not win. The remember man <laughs> when we did our review our our awards episode? Yeah. And we decided that the man Booker was like the most important one that we were betting on. Mm-hmm. We were both wrong. Yeah. Yeah, we were very yeah, no. wrong. I've been wrong on literally all of them so far, so that's good. Which is really fun because you were like you were you were talking real big <laughs> and Well, I want so I got it right last year. And that was like a good solid year of me just crowing about it. Yeah, and I know. And it felt good. To be honest, it felt good. Yeah, well, it feels and, good that you can anymore. <laughs> and now we didn't win um, because George Saunders won yep. for his novel Lincoln and the Bardo. Yep. Um, lots of things to unpack there. But before we have a little discussion on him, I feel like we should talk about what this win or rather loss uh, means for us. It means we got to read some unpleasant shit. Unpleasant to you. Some of us are <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey fans, and for those of us, we're going to have a great time. So what? We've each got a passage to read, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, luckily, Laura, yep. there's a new Fifty Shades of Grey book coming oh out goodness, next gracious. month. Next month. It's coming. So we were going to – we set this up. Not, I didn't know this when we set up this bet, <laughs> truthfully. Like we were like, oh, we'll just pick one of the books and we'll do a little dramatic reading at the time. But now I've learned – that there is a, another Fifty Shades of Grey book being written, ready yep. to publish. It's called it's called Darker. Yeah, I believe, and it's just basically the same story but written from the man's perspective. Yes. Yeah, do you that, know? Do you know what I think? What I think we should select the same sad passage, and you should do it from the woman's perspective. Yeah, and no. I should do it through the men's. <laughs> I think yeah. okay. that would be ideal. The point is, we've really we've really got some uh, some good material to work with for our upcoming uh, show. So that'll be good and not weird at all that we're just reading Fifty Shades Grey at each other. Um, yeah. But yeah, we both lose. We're both losers. We are both losers. Um, you know what though? We're still we're still in for or at least I'm bo- still in yeah, for not, three. Yeah. No, actually, I'm in. Yeah, I'm in for three categories in the National Book Awards, mm. and you're in for the um, fiction uh-huh. only. I think. Didn't I? Did we not both pick Denez Smith? Oh, I think you did pick Denez. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Denez so, was like okay. the official pick of the show. So after you your and story. I are yeah. in for fiction and poetry. I'm still in for nonfiction. Yeah. Um. So I think you should read a little bit more if you end up losing more than I do. <laughs> okay, fine. Since we both lost, we can we can settle this with um, the other ones anyway. to determine award supremacy. Or honestly, at this point, like one of us getting just one of them right <laughs> would be great. But that's um, that's um, that's okay because you know what we're we're both losers and we still have a, co- a couple weeks until the National Book Award is announced. Yeah. But let's go back to the man Booker. So there's a lot. Yeah. There's we a hung lo- our hat on this one. We were sure that one of us would get so it. So why were we why were we sure? Because the Man Booker, out of all of the literature awards, mm-hmm. is like the goofiest in terms of like who wins, mm-hmm. right? It's um, historically it was just a award for people of the British Commonwealth. Yeah, um, this and, is a real touchy subject. Yeah, right and then now a few too. years ago it was opened up to anybody. Uh-huh. Um, and since it's been opened up to anybody, 
um, pretty much not British Commonwealth people have won. So um, Suck it, Brits. Suck it, Brits. So this is actually the second year in a row that an American yep. has won the Man Booker and a Jamaican won the year before that. Yep. And so the Brits are just there like waiting. And what you know what I think it hurts even more mm. because there was like what is being called the first Brexit novel. Yeah. Didn't win. Didn't win. And didn't none win. of the, like, the timely political None of the, none ones. Of the current event ones won. And no. that was my take, too, because they're like last year, for instance, the reason I picked uh, The Sellout to win was because it felt like the book that was doing not only – apart from being incredibly well-written and good, it was also a book that perfectly captured – like just the moment. Yeah. Like it was a book that just felt like it resonated really well. And like reading the list this year, it's like we had these Brexit novels. You know, we had um, I think the one I picked was called Autumn, like about this, um, you know, all these different things that were felt really specific to the moment. There were a bunch of immigrant books. Yeah, exactly. There were all these kind of choices that felt like they were really tied to the world, which isn't to say that Saunders book doesn't have that kind of resonance, but it's less direct. Yeah. Um, and it was also the favorite to win. And yeah. and historically yeah. The favorite to win the man booker, like the obvious choice when you're given five books and you say, which one is going to win the big award? The -hmm. one that you think is never the one that wins, except for this year, it was. Um, So the big controversy, I guess controversy is maybe the wrong word, but maybe it is, um, is that British people are, are mad. About yes. this award, and I'm trying. I'm ge- very genuinely trying to decide whether or not it's with good reason. Um, their take is that um, Americans and our very large publishing apparatus have mm-hmm. plenty of awards that are open just to us, um, and that by opening the you know most prestigious British award to American writers, um, they've essentially like you know they've made the award less British, and they've made there, you know, I think the way they view it almost is that they took their like national book. It's like it almost is like if we took our national book award and yeah. like let other countries win it. Yeah, you know. Do you and, know if the Orange Prize for Fiction is open to anybody? I don't know off the top yeah. of my head, but um, so they're they're a little mad because like the, as the thinking goes, like it's you know awards as we've discussed are a great way to discover books and to discover perspectives, yep. and you know a lot of British writers have kind of said, well. You know, this was a means through which people were discovering great British writers. You know, this was a way people were encountering um, perspectives and things that were specifically British, specifically about. I think it goes beyond that, though, yeah. because it's not just about <clears throat> discoverability, but the Man Booker, more than any other prestigious book award in the entire world that we know of, mm-hmm. in the entire English speaking world, yeah. at least, the Man Booker is the one that comes with promised sales. Yeah. Like yeah. this, like if you win the Man Booker, Makes your career. it will make your career. If you win the National Book Award, like good, you might also win it in two years. Yeah. Like, and that's good. But this um, is the one that correlates to sales. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I mean, beyond the fact that you get like a 50,000 pound prize yeah. or something ridiculous, yeah. like your book sells hundreds of thousands well, so of in copies. That I think that innate relationship to sales, you know, something that you can't just declare Right, yeah. like something that is built over time through reputation of the award, that makes the you know that makes the argument on uh, British people's part fairly compelling, I think, because it kind of do, does away with the idea of well they can just have other awards or you know they can just um, you know like surely there's other things that they can just make up and give out if they want to do something that's just British, but um, the point is that this one, this specific one. You know, which they're really in all of the literary world, there is no replacement for. Yeah. Um, this is the one that has been opened up and is now being won by authors from a country that, um, you know, is overseas, is somewhere else, you know, a different readerships, different markets, different literary culture. And like even George Saunders' you know, victory address, um, and it was, it was very nice, but, you know, he said, like, well, I sure do love this country right now, you know? <laughs> You know, I'm feeling very fond of it. And it's like I can see I can see how like being someone invested in the British literary scene, I might listen to that and be like, it sure would be great if we were cultivating, you know, British perspectives still. And like and like to your point about like book sales, like George Saunders isn't having any problems moving books. Yeah, he's fine. Know? And um, but in the, again, though, it's the job of the award is not to like make someone's career. It just so happens that that is what happens if it's someone – 
you know, younger or less established. So I don't know. I mean, I can kind of see it both ways. I think that, um, you know, opening it up obviously makes it a more globally competitive award. It, pro- it theoretically, you know, it broadens the ta- talent pool. It makes it more of a, um, you know, I mean, the- theoretically, you're getting a better book out of it if you're including everybody. It's just, is that what it's for? And I think that's a question that um, seems to have already been answered. I mean, the award is open, and I doubt they're going to close it, you know? Yeah, I don't, but it is I don't think that they will. Like, I, I, do, I do think that um, for plenty of reasons that have nothing to do with, like, patriotism or nationalism, it is good to have, you know, provincial literary awards. Yeah. You know, it is good to have, like, a national book award, you know, in the United States because it takes – you know, the pulse of the specifically American literary scene, you know, and same, and I'm sure, you know, British people feel the same way about some of this stuff and you, this used to be it and now it isn't. And so um, I understand the gripe. I also think that the books that have won this award in recent years have been very good and I'm happy that they won. Um, I really so. wish that Saunders hadn't won though. Why? Because I, I, I think it just I, I think the same reason that you said before, the reason that we didn't like pick it as our choices, it it felt like a book that could win a national book award any year. Yeah. Like it didn't feel specific to the moment. It didn't feel specific yeah. to the moment and it didn't and that's always what the man booker has done. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The the whole reason that the man booker is so surprising historically. Yeah. You know, the winner of this is is always, you know, like a a shock <clears> moment. <throat> is because it doesn't care about all of the other stuff. It's just this is the book yeah. right now for the moment, yeah. according to these, like, five judges. Right. And I have a really hard time thinking that Lincoln and the Bardo is that. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you have to kind of stretch a little to do it. I yeah. mean, you could theoretically. Like, it's kind of set... You know, it's got like some Civil War themes and I mean, it wouldn't be too hard to connect that to some things happening in America right now. But like um, it is. No, I, I think that you're right. Yeah. Um, but given given that there's like on the list also was a, was the first Brexit novel given mm-hmm. given there was was a story about immigrants that was written on a literal phone. Yeah. Like all of this stuff like there. I don't know. It just. Yeah. I feel like this book could have been written in 1995. It could be written in 2025. <laughs> sure. I'm not. Well, he's not yeah. even like a primarily a novelist. No, you this know? is his first novel. Um, which again, like I think it should be made clear, at least on my end, um, and I think yours as well. We're not. This is no critique of the substance of Lincoln and the Bardo. Like this, I think um, we it's are just not in sa- comparison to the other. Well, it's just books. It, and and not even in comparison in quality. Simply in comparison to past winners as the profile of the winning book. Yeah, and know. understanding what the normal winner is in the yeah. man booker. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but congratulations, George. George is lovely, by is the he? way. Oh, he was here last year. Yeah, I saw him read um, from... He does seem lovely. He he is a genuinely nice man from the time that I met him. Um, I mean, met him. I, like, shook his hand and, like, you know burbled through him like signing a copy of Persistent Crap. You know, <laughs> like it was not a meeting, but he, he was very nice and his reading was very charming. Um, but so much deserved success um, to him. But bummer that we now have to read a bunch of E.L. James on air. <laughs> bummer to you. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm going to bring it. Oh, um, so that's coming. We're going to do the voices. That's in the works. Oh, we're obviously going to do the voices. Um, You're definitely going to be hearing a lot of like wine glass clinks. Yeah, episode. no, there's no way I'm going to get through that uh, sober. But anyway, um, so before we get to the end of the show, there was one other thing that came up last week that I think is worth a discussion here on Print Run just for a minute. Um, and that was a debate sort of cropped up sort of around um, that Kirkus article, right, um, about, you know, specifically like white voices and white authors you know, writing in today's in today's climate. Sure. And the question came up, uh, someone posed it, someone who works with um, authors a lot, sort of posed the question, you know, what, what do I do about the fact that many of my white writers <laughs> suddenly feel like they are, you know, like their writing simply by virtue of being a white is, you know, out of style, is, um, you know, off trend, is simply not a part of the thing agents and editors quote unquote want 
which is, you know, diverse perspectives and stuff. Like, what do you do if you're not a part of that? And her, you know, the gripe that this person had was that it was making her authors feel uncomfortable. Well, it was making them feel uncomfortable that they felt like they should and have to write diverse characters or marginalized characters, but they were afraid that they would be, once they did, they would be criticized and dragged for it. (laughs) And so I think there's obviously a lot of, there's a lot, and um, this person addressed it to to her credit, um, which is why we're not going to do any like sort of call out on this show, but like, um, you know, it's sort of, there's obviously a lot of fallacies, you know, with what's happening there. The first of which is that... um, Being white is out of style. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the idea, like I, I do, and so I get this a lot. Do you really? Thing. Yeah. So, um, this, the, look, to be clear, what this is, the idea from white writers that suddenly their work is, you know, endangered, an underdog is endangered, is suddenly off trend or is less attractive because it's white, um, you know, and and I get it a lot because like if you go on, you know, if you go on agent Twitter and you go on, you know, specifically like our agency's website and stuff, most of the things I list as interests, you know, they're not particularly um, – they're pretty neutral in terms of like all this kind of cultural stuff. You know, I ask for some, you know, politics and science and history and, you know, literary fiction and stuff. But I don't make um, – you know, in like on my social media feeds or like my MSWL page, you know, there's a little bit less of an emphasis on that in just the copy Compared to like compared me. to like you, for instance, yeah. who you know are you know you're constantly talking about you know diverse books and stuff you know to your credit like as part of you know the specific brand you're trying to cultivate and what I see happen a lot because of that is I get a lot of white writers who write into me thinking that I'm going to be some sort of haven. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thank God, another white yeah, person no, no, is going honestly, to appreciate honestly, it. Honestly, I get a lot of books, especially from from white men that. Um, you know, they're kind of pitched as, well, you know, you seemed, you seemed like the right guy because you're the blonde because man. you're the one who just yeah. isn't talking about all that dang diversity, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, the reason I think it happens is because there's this very fragile sense of not being centered, right? You know, I think most, you know, white writing, you know, it's been kind of the emphasis, it's been sort of the tacit, um, you know, it's been the, perspective most heard from for so long that the second and you know there's kind of any push to push against that you know people it feels like inequality it feels like when people are used to that as a norm and take it for granted when you start to push on that it feels a little bit like inequality which is one is silly in and of its face but also two the market simply doesn't bear that out like i mean the truth of it is is that um you know a lot there's a lot of work to do on this diverse, you know, this diverse voices push that I think publishing is trying to make. Like, if you are a white writer right now, even amidst all this, you are certainly not an underdog. You know what I mean? Like, it's not as though, um, it's not as though suddenly no one wants to publish white books. And even saying that is absurd. But it's something, it's a perspective that I think, you know, like, the reason we're talking about on the show is because, you know, the way, you know, this agent, you know, she sort of voiced that some of her clients were thinking that. And it caught me because... It's something I'm seeing a lot of people voice as well, and it feels um, it feels very fragile, and it also feels, and this is kind of what rankles me about it, I think most, is it treats the whole idea of this push as like a market trend, yeah, as well, opposed to something that truly like like would be good for books. Well, with with that is the implicit idea that because you're not of a marginalized background or you're not writing marginalized characters that your book is going to be less sellable. Yeah. Um and so the the implication there is that you're out of style and so the the kind of catch 22 that's being presented by a lot of uncomfortable white authors yeah. is I'm damned if I do I damned if I'm damned if I don't. Like if I don't do it I won't get published. And if I do do it, I'll get published and then everyone will hate me. Because So let's make sure we understand that second part there. Everyone will hate me because I wrote a character from a you know background that isn't mine poorly. Yes. And that's Specifically the thing. Specifically poorly. And that's the part that I think um, really needs to be kind of emphasized as sort of the quote unquote solution here. Right? Like the answer is that just do it responsibly. 
right? Like tell stories that are yours to tell. And if you don't think that you can, like maybe just like don't do it. Like don't write American heart, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Exactly. And if you think that or, you know, put some work, you know, actually, you know, put some work in to the, you know, to to the research or the understanding or the, um, you know, any of the bits that might help you tell a story with the amount of sensitivity and empathy and, you know, authenticity that are required, you know, and like, and I think mostly, and we were talking about it off air and you used a really great phrase that I'm going to let you deliver in a second because it was very good. Um, but the idea of just not telling stories that aren't yours, you know, and just trusting that your story still matters because of course it does. Um, but just making sure that you're not overstepping your bounds, making sure that you're not, um, you know, speaking for other cultures in a way that might be considered uh, flippant or whitewashing. Um, and how did you put it? Um, it, this is a phrase that I actually got from, I was at a, I was at a writer co- writer's conference over the weekend and yeah. there was a, there was a class kind of about this, but on a larger scale. Yeah. Um, and it was about decolonizing your writing. Yeah. So it's <laughs> you, it, like, it, it's, if you think, if you think about that, it's, you know, colonization is all about kind of steamrolling yeah. over local cultures yeah. and local people's. And kind of taking what you want and, and leaving the rest. speaking for them, yeah. And speaking for them. And it's, you know, it's important that that the difference there is the reason people want you, white writer, to write marginalized characters is because that's literally the way the world is. It doesn't mean that you should take the stories of somebody else. Yeah. So it's it's reflecting the world the way that it is. But mm. not colonizing these imagined worlds with these imagined characters. And the fact that the fact that this line is so tricky to navigate, right? The fact that so many authors look at this kind of ongoing conversation that's happened over the last few years and see only I'm not allowed to write about anyone, you know, who isn't white. But me. But yeah. also if I do, everyone will um but or if I don't, everyone will you know crucify me for it. Um, really, it just speaks to the fact that, like, no one's ever had to think about this stuff before. You know, like <laughs> no one, and they sh- really should have had to by now. And like, it's honestly, we're called to more right now. You know, artists and writers right now. I mean, yes, in a way, like the bar for what is acceptable is rising. Hooray! You know? And that's good. And that's good. And that simply just has to be a call that's taken up as you know a positive one because. We need it in like kowtowing to, you know, these lines of making sure that whiteness is comfortable is something that has stopped a lot of conversations that have nothing to do with books in this country for a very long time. And um, it let's not let it bleed into our thinking with what books should be and should not be published, you know. So the right tip. Oh, boy. So here's the thing, Laura. Besides you were... <laughs> colonize, don't colonize your own fiction. <laughs> Besides that. Um, yeah. Um, so rather than um, rather than give a right tip for the readers. Yes. Um, we're going to give you an agent tip. You were going to give me an agent yeah, tip. Yeah, because you were gone for many weeks. I was gone. And... I don't remember how to agent. Yeah, it's I know. It's hard work. Um, it's, it's bad. Uh, you were like, you know, sitting upside down and using your computer backwards. And it was, it was, a, it was a disaster, yeah. frankly. Um, I was reading print books. <laughs> well, these e-books. I don't know if you've heard. These e-books know. are coming. They're really cool. I don't know cool. about that. Um, but uh, so in Publishers Weekly uh, last week, um, Jonathan Karp, who is a big-time editor, has been for a long time, um, sort of wrote the 10 rules for acquiring editors. And I thought it was a really interesting blog post, and we'll link out to it. I thought it was pretty good. But um, he kind of gave some rules for when to decide to pull the trigger on an acquisition and when not to. And I thought there were some of them that um, were interesting and I think might be interesting to um, not only agents but to readers and you know writers as well. So the first thing he says – All right. Teach me how to agent yeah, yeah, Jonathan yeah. Karp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've so, always wanted to be taught how to agent by a man. So, so <laughs> Um, yeah. Um, well, there's one here. So the first one is love it. True. True. You gotta love the book. And that kind of ties into, um, this other one here, which says, if you cry, buy. Also true. 
And I think that those are both good ones because the thing with agenting is that you end up having to read things so many damn times in a row that yeah. if you don't love if it. If you like, don't love it, then you're going to despise it by the end. Whereas if you love it, you'll just kind of not like it a lot by the end. Yeah. Um, so this is a good one, I think. Um, and this is one of his rules. Wait for authority. And what he means by that is like make sure you've got the the right author who's writing the book, right? Like find, you know, if you're having, you know, kind of like what we just talked about, you know, if you want a book about a certain place, get, you know, get the author who is. Who's actually been there who, and is or actually who, who has the authority it, yeah. on it. And like that's a huge thing for me, like on nonfiction side, right? Like if you want someone to write on a sub- subject, wait for the person to show up who knows the subject, you know? And it's, um, I think, you know, from a, you know, since this still is a segment meant for, uh, you know, writers, you know, the answer is take your time and develop the authority here. Like a big part of what he says here is like be fine waiting for the right person. And for as a writer, be fine taking the time to become that person. You know, do the research, you know, spend the time. Like, I think a good – so the, this weekend I did a panel about query letters. And one of my big like no's, like absolutely not will you ever make it past the query letter with me if you do this – um, it's showing that you are not a reader of the genre that you're writing in. Mm-hmm. And that becomes really, really clear when I get query letters, when people are saying mean things about like, first of all, books in the genre, but books that haven't, you know, that, that have been out for 15, 20 years. Um, so I think, I think in that way it, it makes sense. You know, if you're, if you're writing in it, you should know it. If you're writing about a subject, you should know the subject or you should take the yeah. time and do the research. I guess that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So this is one that um, – this next one is one that really resonates with me um, both as an editor and both and as an agent. And here we go. Resist the urge to acquire during slow periods. Like slow for you? Yeah. Like if you're not getting anything yeah. good? Yeah. Oh, Yeah. I've done that before. Don't, don't sign do books that. that you don't want just because you haven't signed something in a while. Do you believe in that? I do believe in that. I do believe in that. Yeah, I, I feel like if if I feel like the impulse, and especially because you can actually act on this impulse, but yeah. the, the impulse is when you're sitting there and you're not finding anything that you like. You're like, but I have like all these good things that I want to see. Like, why is nobody sending them yeah. to me? And just like commission it. Right. Yeah. Like you just go yeah. to somebody you like, and be like, can you write this for me? Well, that gets to this other one here, actually, which is have your own ideas. Mm. And like that's a great one. You know, if you go back to um, our build a press yes. episode, like as someone whose job it is to acquire books, whether you're an agent or an editor, um, it's. I think it's really key to not only just sit on sit and wait, but also to go out and find the things you want, and not only and be able to kind of come up with what you want and find the right person for it. In a lot of instances, um, and that ends up, you know, so much of our job, I think, is not only evaluating other people's work, but inspiring them to create that work. Right, like yeah. talking to a writer and saying, "Hey, as someone who works in writing, I understand." you know, at least in part what your strengths and weaknesses are. And I think you'd be great at writing this. You know, I, I view that as, you know, a lot of great books come out of that. And I, and I think that that, that matters. Um, I, I think for Have Your Own Ideas, I mean, for me, I'm not really in a position except for with my current authors where I can commission an idea. And a lot mm-hmm. of the time me commissioning an idea from one of my novelists, it's it's not, hey, you should write a book about this. It's, Hey, here's a tiny little moment. Maybe this can turn into inspiration for something. Mm-hmm. Um, most of me having my own ideas is filling a plot hole, yeah, or yeah. kind of helping an author brainstorm about which way the sequel should go, right, and that sort of thing. Which I I feel like is is nice to have on both sides. Yeah, and so um, the last one I think that's worth that's worth touching on here is don't be cynical. <laughs> which is I, okay. like actually believe what it is you're selling I think is the way oh, it's kind of phrased here okay. which is like don't try to bullshit and not only and not only to others but to yourself like don't you know like the example here is like just because an author wrote one good book 
if the other one looks like it sucks, it probably just sucks. You don't have to, you know, you shouldn't have to like convince yourself of a market that you feel doesn't exist, you know. And um, I think that's I think that's a pretty good one. And it kind of gets at this last one here, which is have conviction um, in what it is you're trying to sell, even when no one else does. Um, yeah, I don't know those those both speak to me a little bit because I think you know so much of this job is. I mean, it's literally, you know, bringing a book to life that doesn't exist yet, right? Like the reason and you like – doing it by yourself. Like, like the sitting book, on your couch and doing it alone. Yeah, I mean it's um, – you know, so much of this is filling holes, right? And when you're trying to fill a hole, no one knows what it looks like yet. Like if you have a book that no one's ever seen before, then it makes a certain amount of sense that people might be skeptical of it at first because they haven't seen it. And as we've talked about many times – Publishing is incredibly risk averse, you know, and it likes to repeat things and it likes to go back to wells that it's constantly found. And so I think there's a certain um, there's a certain necessity and in it, like it believing a, what you're selling, even when it's only you that's believing in it. It takes a really long time to sell a book as an agent. It yeah. takes a long time to yeah. find one as an editor. Yeah. It takes a long time to write one as an author. Mm-hmm. And most of that, you're going to be doing it alone. Mm-hmm. And you kind of just... You got to stay the course. Yeah. That's the thing. Like if if you don't have conviction that what you're doing has some sort of value, you're not going to – it's not going to because mm-hmm. you have to do it long after you you think that it's that it should have happened mm-hmm. by now. Um, so no, I, I like that. I appreciate that. You know, mm-hmm. coming – you know, as, as an Asian, we're always baffled that something that we love just hasn't sold. Yeah. You know, we're always just yeah. convinced that we have terrible taste. Right. You know, right. <laughs> we're always like just filled with imposter syndrome, and so are authors. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a really nice reminder for everybody, Eric. Thank you for sharing that. Well, this... thank Jonathan. Thank one more literary Jonathan. Thank you, <laughs> literary Jonathan the seventeenth. Yeah. We appreciate you. <laughs> Did you see it real quick? Jonathan Saffron Fowers' mother has a memoir coming out. Oh goodness up. gracious. Yeah. Yeah. I hope it's called Little Jonathan. <laughs> John's mom. It's called. <laughs> um I actually I think it's a Holocaust memoir. So Oh, that's less exciting. Well, so I bet you feel bad. I wonder for who she sent that. emails to <laughs> telling telling them about like the family hamster. I don't I'm know. never gonna get over those Natalie Portman emails. That was the funniest thing that's ever happened. But anyway. I think we're done for this week. I think we are done for this Uh, week. Thank you very much for uh, sticking with me as I catch up on the last three weeks. I definitely learned a lot. I hope you did too. As a reminder, Writing by Reading, which is the fifth season by N.K. Jemisin, is going to be out this Thursday, October Mm -hmm. 26th. And then we have The Query Show on November 16th, Writing by Reading the following Thursday, and First Pages on Thursday, November 30th. It's coming, folks. NaNoWriMo. It's coming. Oh, NaNo's coming. It's coming. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) All right. We'll see you for Writing by Reading and for our regular episode next week. Bye. Bye.